you're worried with the length of time that you have the ability to speak clearly and make it uh, understandable for everyone. I think that's actually give us a hard understanding that we honor and glorify you in this time. Amen. Amen. You're going to leave church today. Most of you are going to go home and turn on your televisions and watch what? Football. Somebody be honest, say football. Okay. <laughs> that could be it too. Your TV is not going to apply to this illustration though. So when you're watching football today, there's going to be some long pass down the field. Hopefully Chase catches that pass and scores a touchdown. Now, the very next thing the TV is going to do is change angles. They're going to show you how the left tackle took out the defensive end that gave Joe Burrow the time to throw that pass. The next angle is going to show you the flag laying on the field. That means that pass didn't count. And then the final angle is going to show you the sideline where the coach has just slammed his headphones on the ground and the same words you'd never allow your child to say. All right? All of that was the exact same time, just four different angles. And so we need to keep that in mind when we're here in Revelation, that in the book of Revelation, God is telling us what's going to happen between the first coming of Christ, the baby in Bethlehem, and the second coming of Christ, the conquering Lord of all, but from different angles. And I hope what you're hearing from us as we're teaching that all of those angles give us different insight, more information, a better understanding of what God is accomplishing in the world. So, we started the book of Revelation with these letters to these beleaguered churches. In each of those churches, people were being persecuted, people were being jailed, Sometimes people were even being killed, and it was causing the churches to look and say, how did we get this wrong? We thought Jesus Christ was the conquering Lord of all, and if he's the conquering Lord of all, why, is, why are our lives so difficult? All right? To which then God reveals to them not only their own sin. Remember, each of those letters has a bit of a, here's what you're getting right, here's where you need to repent kind of feel. But then, he sort of pulls back the curtain from heaven and shows them the throne room. If you want to know what God's doing in the world, you need to see there. And the only way you can see there is if God himself pulls back the curtains. So we see that throne room, and what we see there is that God is at work in the world conquering. But that conquering doesn't look like an army with tanks and helicopters and bombers. That conquering is in the hearts and lives of men and women. As the gospel comes to bear, the gospel is preached, people repent, people come to the knowledge of their Lord and Savior that saves them. And they are gathered together into churches. So the victory of the king of the world doesn't look like dead Russian soldiers everywhere. It looks like five or six men, five or six women, 
sitting around the table with their Bibles open, hearing what God has to say, repenting of sin, being gathered together in local churches where there the king of all the universe reigns. And that brings us then into these three different angles that we're in the middle of. We see the seals. And I don't know if you remember, between seal six and seal seven, they go right to the throne room and show you this is what's happening there. And we, we see these amazing prayers by saints who paid the ultimate price dying for their faith. Then that leads us into the trumpets. And again, it's not seals, then trumpets, then bowls. It's seals give us one angle. Trumpets give us another angle. The bowls give us a third angle. But here we are now in the middle of the trumpets. And what we're going to see, just like with the seals, and we're going to see in a couple of weeks with the bowls, each of these three approaches, these three angles, ends with a clear statement that the world will be judged. The world will be judged. Okay? It doesn't matter how much power you have in this world. It doesn't matter how much money you have in this world. It doesn't matter how much education you have in this world. It doesn't matter how many people will vote for you or vote against you in this world. You will give an answer to whom? God. And that's not always apparent here in this life, which is why you need God's word to teach you that. So open with me this morning to chapter 9 in the book of Revelation. And just to let you know, our goal today is to finish chapter 9 and get through chapter 10. Um, Alex, would you be willing to read for us, starting in verse 13, the last verses there in chapter 9 of Revelation? Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God. Saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was ten thousand times ten thousand. I heard the numbers. This is how I saw the horses and riders, and who rode them. They wore breastplates in the color of fire and sapphire. And sulfur, and the heads of the horses were like lion's heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur that came out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, but their tails are like serpents with heads, and by these they were The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries, their sexual immorality or their thefts. Thank you. So I want you to take a minute at your tables. Uh, we have some visitors here today. Welcome. Good morning. Glad you're here. Uh, and I want you to answer this question. What evidence have you seen recently that the world has lost its mind, <laughs> right? Five minutes is all the time you've got, so get to work. I saw 
So exactly, God has these angels bound, and we're going to see that these are evil angels, demonic angels. And they are released, and here's what they do. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. So we see right away that God had prepared them for a very specific purpose. Do you see that, how that's explained? Prepared for an hour, a day, a month, and a year. Okay? This wasn't by accident. And God's not simply responding to what the world does. This is a plan that God had put in place. And also, don't miss where these angels are bound. Did you catch that detail in the text? Where are they bound? The river Euphrates. And anybody know why that's important? Tower of Babel. Garden of Eden. Exactly. Exactly. If you're sitting in Israel, right on the other side of the Euphrates is Babylon. Babylon. Throughout the Bible, both Old and New Testaments, Babylon was the city of ultimate power, but ultimate wickedness. There is where nearly everyone worshipped idols. There is where all the captive Jews who had been swallowed up as Nebuchadnezzar swallowed up Jerusalem, where they were captured and taken away. Babylon is the opposite of Zion. Zion is this place where God rules, fulfills his promises, saves his people. Babylon is where the idols are worshipped, where the demonic reigns, where people don't look to and worship the true God, but the idols of wood, stone, and ivory that they had carved. And it's from there that these powers are now unleashed onto the world. And see what they bring. We're told, so the four angels who had been prepared for the hour of the day, the month, the year, were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. Now, we spend a lot of time looking at numbers and symbolism here in the book of Revelation. I'll just point out to you that that's twice as many as the angels around the throne we saw earlier. So you're supposed to be terrified of this massive number. This massive number of beasts that are coming to kill. And then he said, oh, don't miss to the end of verse 16. How did he know how many there were? Yes. So again, if you're struggling with how do we take the symbolism, realize he wasn't counting. He heard. Heard this awful sound. If you can imagine uh, twice 10,000 times 10,000 horses marching or charging across a field. Okay? And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates, the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads. And, the fi and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. Okay? So these aren't your grandpa's horses. <clears throat> By these three 
plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. Now what does smoke do? Okay, absolutely. What else? What? Yes. I was a volunteer firefighter for a couple of years, and if firefighters show up at a house that's engulfed, what's one of the first things they want to do? They want to vent the fire. So they hop up on your roof, and what do they have? Axes. They've got axes, and they start chopping. And the reason for that chopping is, if we're going to get in there and be able to save anybody, we've got to get some of that smoke out so that we can see. Okay? So the picture that John paints for us of this world, it's again the world between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ, is these beasts are breathing out fire, smoke, and sulfur. And that's what blinds the world. That's why the world has lost its mind. Turn with me to the book of Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 4. I'm just going to read one verse. Well, that's what, I'll read two verses. Uh, we're going to read 17 and 18 from Ephesians chapter 4. Ben, could you read that for us? Go ahead. <laughs> so this I say, and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their hearts. So we're told here not to walk as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their minds. The best that their minds have to offer is called what by Paul here in Ephesians? Futile. It's futile. People don't sin because of a lack of education. People don't sin because they can't figure stuff out. A week and a half ago, a bunch of terrorists beheaded children ripped open pregnant women not because their kindergarten teachers were mean to them. It was evil. But it was an evil driven by blindness. They can't even see how evil it is. That's why it was celebrated by so many all over social media. We're told then in verse 18 they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, but it's not an ignorance due to lack of education, it's an ignorance due to hardness of heart. I want to see what verse 19 says. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. They don't just practice impurity, they're greedy about it. That's the world that Revelation is trying to describe with locusts and horses. Back to Revelation chapter 9. 
One of the differences, then, between the second half of Revelation 9 and the first half of Revelation 9, you'll see in the first half there was this boundary put on. They could injure people but not kill them. Here, in the second half of Revelation, we see, of Revelation 9, we see an intensification where the horses now kill. Horses and riders kill. And how many do they kill? A third. A third. Now, again, this is describing the world between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. But all you've got to do is watch the news for about 30 seconds to see somebody killing somebody somewhere. Don't you? I mean, the violence du jour is just what's going on in Israel. If we look back just in my lifetime, you know, countless war after war after war after war after war. Um, some of you people know this. I'm, I'm a financial counselor, and so every so often I'll be talking to a client, and they'll tell me, the world's at war! And I'm like, yeah? <laughs> and I even have a slide I can show them that simply goes back over the last 70 years and shows you war by war by war by war by war by war by war. And guess what you won't find? Is a year where the world's at peace. Because that's not the world we live in. We live in a world where ideas have consequences. And the ideas driven by these locusts, the ideas driven by these horsemen result not just in the sins that we see in the world around us, but death everywhere. Death everywhere. Um, some of you know we lived in the Czech Republic for eight years, and there was a, a period where we lived sort of right next to a battlefield where in the 1800s, thousands of people were slaughtered in this big fight with, with Napoleon was coming through and the Germans were there to fight him. And I used to walk through that field and just wonder how many people died right here. Is there a square foot of ground anywhere that hasn't been soaked in blood? Because if you don't know, back then when you got killed, it was pretty gruesome. Cannonball severing you, a sword piercing you. And then I realized that's the story everywhere. China, Mao Zedong, millions. Russia, whether it's Lenin or Stalin, millions. Even here in the United States. In our race wars, wars with the Indians, just right now, the way we kill each other, the place is soaked in blood. And the reason is not, again, a lack of education. It's not proper nutrition. We're not waiting for a politician to figure it all out and come save us. Ideas have consequences. And that's what brings us to the end of this chapter. Verse 20, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze and stone and wood which cannot see or hear or walk nor did they repent of their murders or sorceries or their sexual immoralities or their thefts why has God given so much room and time to locusts and horsemen 
He wants to bring the world to repentance. Someday, there's going to be a judgment. And not a single person at that judgment can say, Shocker! I didn't realize I was a sinful person. I didn't realize the world was such an awful place. Because every one of them, no matter how long their lives lasted, spent their lives slaughtering and being slaughtered. without an excuse. Every single person. And I hope what you see in this text is it doesn't matter how high the fire gets turned, the heat never changes anybody. They just become more rigid, hard-hearted, and giving themselves to their blindness. Now, having said all of that, one of the things that God is wanting to do through John is shape the way his people see the world in which they live. At the present time, or I should say beginning of the book of Revelation, we have these churches, they're beleaguered, they're thinking, woe is us, we'll never win. I thought he was going to be king of kings and lord of lords. And he's telling them, I am. I am. And I want you to understand a bit about why the world's the way it is. So that you don't hate them the way that they hate you. So what's going to be God's answer to this mess? The locusts and the horsemen. That's where chapter 10 comes into play. All right? Um, yes, sir. Question? No, just a quick thought. You know, if you go back to chapter 6 for a minute, the fourth seal. 25% of the world is killed at that point. Now we have another 33. That's, that's a pretty short period of time that 50% of the world is dead. Yeah. Yep. And one of the things I hope that we start to think through when we see numbers like that is realize we're not to take away from there some mathematical calculation that it's this number of people who die. I think we're supposed to take away from that just the general, oh, look at the suffering. Look what these ideas do. Look at the consequence of thinking children in the womb aren't children. Look at the consequence of thinking might makes right. So that any politician, if they win an election, can go take whatever they want. Look at the consequence of thinking boys can be girls and girls can be boys. Yeah. Great. So, chapter 10. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. So between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet, we've got this interlude in chapter 6, and it'll carry on next week into chapter 11. Just like with the um, uh, seals, there was an interlude between the sixth seal and the seventh seal, where God showed you what he was doing. Well, here, he's going to let these beleaguered churches know, this is what I want you to do. Okay? Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. 
When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay. But that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. So first off, this chapter starts with an angel coming down from heaven. What kind of angel is it? Mighty. Don't miss those details. This is a mighty angel coming down from heaven. And to give you an idea about who this is and what's happening here, he's wrapped in a cloud. Who else in the Bible is wrapped up in a cloud? God. Mount Sinai, just one of those places. With a rainbow over his head. This is not a pride march, okay? Where's this rainbow symbol come from? Noah, exactly. His face was like sun, his legs like pillars of fire, other images of God given to us in the Old Testament. And in his hand, he has what kind of scroll? Just a little scroll. We've seen scrolls before in the book of Revelation, but this is the only time one's called little. When you say that something's little, what are you trying to say about it? It's not big. It's not big. Love <laughs> <laughs> for that depth of wisdom. Wisdom. <laughs> yeah, so, well, it's not important. If you're a beleaguered church, you want something big and powerful to fight for you. Yes. And this angel comes down, fire, rainbow, legs like all these pictures. And what's the dude got to fight with? A notebook. A little scroll. And so you might be tempted to be dismissive of the scroll. I wonder, this is a vision for John. If these churches, the first part of Revelation, saw this vision, would they go, dude, you don't even have a sword. Okay? You just got this little notebook. Exactly. He had a little scroll, and it was open in his hand. And then we're told, he says, one foot where? And one foot where? Does that like cover everything for you? Okay. He's powerful everywhere. 
That's what he's trying to say. And calls out with a loud voice like a what? Like a lion roaring. Um, when my kids were little, we took them to Brookfield Zoo one day. If you've ever been to Brookfield Zoo, it's right outside of uh, Chicago. And we got there late, and so we had to park like a mile and a half away, and they had these shuttle buses. But we did get there pretty early, and we got out of the car, and all of a sudden, we heard this massive roar. It was like it was right next to us. And I realized, we're still like a mile and a half away from the zoo, and some lion just saw his breakfast and roared, and we can hear it this far, and it sounds like he's right next to us. So that's the effect, this lion roar, like a lion roaring. When he called out then, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, John says, I was about to write. And what he's wanting to write down is what those thunders said. Don't miss the point here. Thunders are speaking, okay? Again, it's a part of this apocalyptic language that you're meant to understand symbolically and typologically. And he's told, when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. And some of you are going to be disappointed. I don't know what the seven thunders said. Why don't I know what the seven thunders said? Because God didn't intend for me to know what the seven thunders said. Okay? And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven. You can imagine this, this picture, this, this massive angel told with the cloud, the rain, all of that. He swears by God himself, or some would say by Jesus Christ, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. So you are told when the angel blows the seventh trumpet, it's all done. It's all done. So I want you to keep that in mind when next week we, or that might be two weeks from today, we see that seventh trumpet blow, we're only halfway through the book. Why? Because there's some more angles that God wants to give you. We're going to then go through, uh, we got seals, trumpets, bowls, seven bowls that are going to tell us again what it's like between the first coming and the second coming but from a different perspective. Okay? So what did the angel do then? Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who's standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel. Can you imagine John going with this massive Dude, Can you give me your scroll? Give me the scroll. And he said to me, Take it and eat it. And it's going to have two effects on you. What's it going to do to your stomach? Make you bitter, make you sick. What's it going to do in your mouth? Sweet, sweet as honey. And you know, we live in a land of processed refined sugar. Uh, honey was about as sweet as you could get for these people. 
I hope when you hear that this scroll is going to be sweet as honey, some bells go off in your head. Have you heard this before? Anybody? No? Ezekiel would be one of the big ones. Where else? I'm sorry? Psalm, exactly. Jeremiah has this as well. So as we wrap up today, let's look at Psalm 119. Somebody want to read verse uh, 103 for us when you get there? Psalm 119, 103. Somebody speak up loud. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Fantastic. So right away, John's going to use this Old Testament picture to tell you what about this scroll. I'm sorry? God's word. God's word. God's word. And if you have any doubt, let's turn over to Ezekiel 3. So, first verse, Ezekiel chapter 3. He said to me, Son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll... And go, speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth. He gave me the scroll to eat. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I give you. And fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it. And it was in my mouth, what? As sweet as honey. As sweet as honey. So hear this. What does the church need between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ? An honest politician would be helpful, but not necessary. An awesome teacher would be helpful, but not necessary. All the government aid programs in the world could be helpful, but not necessary. Beautiful music can be helpful, but not necessary. The one thing that is necessary, that little scroll, God's word. And as his church takes it in, it's that metaphor, we eat it, we take it in, it tastes to us like what? Sweeter than honey. This is what I want. This is what I want to eat. Have you ever seen a little baby? Um, uh, uh, you know, two or three years old, so a little baby, but mom's giving them a drop of honey on their lips or on their tongue. What do they do? Smile, okay? And just like the big boys in the Old Testament, uh, uh, who was David's friend, the king of Saul, Saul's son, Jonathan? Jonathan, we're told once, tasted honey on his mouth and it said his eyes lit up. He'd been marching, fighting all day, tasted honey, his eyes lit up. That's the response of God's people to his word. When we open his word in Sunday school, when we open his word on Sunday morning in the service, our eyes are meant to open up and brighten. 
That's what blows the smoke away. That's what clears the sulfur that the locusts and the horses have been spreading. That's where or how we can see truth from falsehood, and then we understand that God's truth has a whole different set of consequences. God's truth doesn't leave all the damage, brokenness, hurt, pain, suffering that this world is enduring. God's truth leads to healing, wholeness, restoration, forgiveness, repentance, all of those things that then build a group of people into this thing called the church and prepare us for that seventh trumpet when he will return. But don't miss the fact that that little scroll will make your belly hurt. Why? Because the world hates it. And if you eat it, they'll hate you too. That's what was going on with those churches at the first part of the book. The world hated them. And it wasn't because they were small. It wasn't because they were powerful. Nothing to do with that. Jesus said, they hated me and they'll do what to you. They'll hate you too. But in the middle of that hate, John was commanded to prophesy. To prophesy. Which is a fancy word that means preach. He ate God's word and then was called to preach in a way that that honey came out all over everything. That's what our job is. So let me say this. I expect you to go next November. In fact, if you have a conversation with me and you tell me, Joe, I'm not going to vote, I'll say, don't be stupid. There's some more polite version of that. Go vote. But you know what? None of those people on that list are going to save you. There's only one person that can save you from your sin who died on a cross to accomplish that for you. That's what you need. All this other stuff that can be good, can be helpful, but the one necessary thing is that you place your trust and faith not in Washington, but in what Christ accomplished. That's where you find peace. That's where you find health, wholeness, forgiveness, restoration, community. It's there. And that's what Jesus wanted to communicate to his church through these visions given to John. We've got 30 seconds. If anybody has a burning question, they can't wait. That's your chance. Okay, let's pray. <laughs> Father, thank you for your word. It's going to be preached to us in just a few minutes as well. Make it. Make it sweet as honey to us. And give us strength and patience and perseverance to endure the stomachache it's going to cause in the world. We love you. We love you. Give us courage to proclaim and preach with faithfulness. In the name and love of Christ, I pray. Amen. Amen.